according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at Jesus' feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus said to her, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and they went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to Jesus a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech and they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. He took the man aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears and Jesus spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven... Jesus sighed and said to the man, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more Jesus ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I invite the congregation to be seated. And it looks like most of our children might be a little too young to come up for a children's sermon. And I, I feel as a, as a new father myself that it's my responsibility to say that I have a five-month-old. And uh, she's very cute. And if you would like, I'll show you pictures afterwards. I, I'm not shy. But uh, so, you know, I, I realized also when I was reading that that... When I told you about being in Dr. Reidenauer's preaching class, and he, he said that unkind comment, this is the text I was preaching that day. Oh, wow. So maybe I can do a better job than I did in preaching class today. You know, it's interesting, though, the way, the way that ties in, because in, in Isaiah's text, one of the, one of the uh, people who writes for WorkingPreacher.com, who wrote the commentary on this text, said that Isaiah's phrasing of of uh, frightened hearts or faint hearts literally translates to racing hearts. Now, I don't know if any of y'all ever had the opportunity to meet Dr. Reidenauer, who is the preaching professor at Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary and probably was there when Jesus was a, was a young person in seminary. But when you preached in front of him because he could be so grisly, I tell you what, your heart was racing. Is that true? See, Pastor Maria agrees. It must be true. And... You know, but there are lots of moments in our lives where our hearts are racing, and sometimes we're able to spit the words out. Sometimes they're actually the words we want to say. I remember as a, as a chaplain resident at Palmetto Health, I did a, a year of clinical pastoral education there back in 2006. The, the first time I walked into the room of a person who I knew was dying, they had just been removed from life support. And uh, I walked in and... We had back then, you know, the, the sacred green book, and I had the, the occasional services book, which is now tattered from its years of use, but it was fresh then. And I walked in with that occasional service book, and I, I walked over to the family, and I said, you know, I'd like to read a psalm. Why don't we read Psalm 23? So I opened it up, and my heart was pounding. 
And with a shaky voice, I started to read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And as I was reading, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, the patient breathe their last. And I finished up, and we spent a few minutes talking about the fear of death and the grief that we have, and the family said, you know, we feel better. And I, I said, well, you know, you can stay for a while, but if you'd like, you can go. And the family said, no, I think we'll go. And they left, and I said, I have got this chaplain thing down. <laughs> and then the very next call I had was another person being removed from life support, and I was like, I know what to do now. And so I felt good. And I walked into that room, and I pulled out my occasional services book, and we read the 23rd Psalm, and yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil, for the Lord is with me, they're still breathing. You know, and I got done with the psalm, and they, they continued to breathe. And we prayed a little bit, and they continued to breathe. And I was there an hour and a half, almost two hours, and they were still there. And I didn't know exactly what to do, but I figured that I didn't have to be there the entire time they were there if that person was in no hurry. So I, so I went out, and I said, maybe this chaplain thing isn't as easy as what I thought it was, right? We, and, and so those moments sometimes when our hearts are racing and we're nervous and, and we worry, those can be some moments where we do a good job. Those times when, our, when we're feeling secure and we don't worry, those can be the times that really throw us for a loop. I, I remember also, and I don't often acknowledge the fact that I, I went on dates with women before my wife. But this does end with my wife, and so I feel okay telling the story. You know, we, uh, I was dating, or I was wanting to date a young woman when I was a, a much younger man. And uh, we kind of liked each other a little bit and been kind of infatuated with each other, but life never worked out. And then she joined the Marine Corps, and I figured that I probably wouldn't see her very often after that. But she came home and invited me to go to the Marine Corps ball. Now, I had been in ROTC, and we had gone to military balls, and I, I just thought this was a cool opportunity. And I was pretty certain that she was going to look pretty cute in her uniform. So I said, well, of course I'll go. And before we went to the military ball, we decided to go on a date. And my heart was racing because I was excited. And we had a good date, and I went to drop her off at her house. And rather than walk her to the door, which I would normally under a lot of circumstances do, I said, well, this has been fun. Let's do it again soon. And she looked at me kind of weird and then got out and went to her door. And we went out a couple nights later. And again, my heart was racing because this was a, a young woman with whom I was really infatuated. And I had done something dumb and I knew it the last time we had been out. And so we were kind of talking. And if you're anything like me, well, I talk all the time anyway. But if you're nervous, I really talk a lot. And, uh, and so I was nervous, and I was just kind of babbling. And at one point, I said, well, you know, if I'm really serious about someone, I usually walk into the door. And yeah, that's it. And uh, she looked at me. And again, I knew that I said something dumb. And I could have made it all better probably by saying, let me, let me just own up to the fact that I'm very nervous because I think you're cute. And I was nervous the other night, and I'm nervous now. I really didn't want to walk you to the... You know, that would have solved everything. But my tongue, which is normally so free, seized up on me. And because my heart was beating so fast and my, and my mind was spinning so fast, I, I didn't have a single word that I could say to recover from that. Needless to say, even though we went to the Marine Corps ball, it was not, a, it was not the time we expected to have. 
Now it turns out a couple, about two months later, I met Lauren, my wife. And, uh, you know, as I saw her and my heart started to pound then too. And I saw her and all of a sudden I was able to speak. It's interesting throughout scriptures, where the way we see God operating in, in things, you know, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and opens the heart of other people, right? God binds tongues and God looses tongues. And I don't know whether God bound my tongue that day on that day, but I certainly think God had a hand in helping me to say some of the right things to Lauren when, when we started dating. You know, I, I think about when a, the, a lot of those times where I felt nervous and afraid, and, and some of them are serious and some of them aren't. But the thing that connects this to me is we have the Syrophoenician woman who would, who's heard that Jesus was in town. One of the things that she would have heard about Jesus is that he had cast out a demon before he got there. That was his, that was his first healing miracle in Mark, I believe, was casting out a demon. And so here is this woman whose daughter has a demon. Now, I'm, I'm a new father, but I discovered early on that during pregnancy, anxiety and fear were constant companions. Because I'm, I'm 40 year, 41 years old, and uh, you know, at 41, a lot of my friends have already raised their children. And I, I thought that I knew what anxiety was. I thought that I knew what fear was, but I didn't know what anxiety and fear is because you know all the things that can happen during a pregnancy. You know, when they go down that long list of things that might go wrong, you wonder what, how anyone's ever born healthy. And the whole time during the pregnancy, I was so nervous and so afraid. And then I remember holding Willow for the first time and being afraid I was going to break her because she was so fragile or she was so fragile. You know, I... And in all these moments, my heart races. And I, and I think about this woman now, knowing what anxiety and knowing what fear are at the possibility of something happening to your child. And I have a new appreciation for what she must have been feeling when she went to Jesus. Someone was a Jew with a Jew. Someone with whom her people didn't really get along with. And going to him and asking him for healing. You know, it's, it's one thing when you go to the doctor... And you have an expectation that you're exchanging for services. And whether you come from the same place or not, there's, there's a deal there that the doctor is going to help you whether you personally get along or not. It's a little bit di different relationship when, when you're going to someone who's a stranger, when you go to someone who traditionally your family and their family doesn't get along, when you're going to somebody who has no obligation to help you, and you say to that person, my daughter has a demon, can you heal her? And that person responds in the way that Jesus did, which is, let the children eat first. Why would I take good things and throw it to dogs? Think about the way you would feel if you were already vulnerable, already worried, already anxious, already scared for the health of your child. And someone responds to you, why would I take what's good and throw it to dogs? You know, there's, there's a lot of people who interpret this text that Jesus was testing her faith. And in this interpretation of the text, the woman responds in a way that passes the test and says to Jesus, well, you know, if there's enough crumbs left over, there, the crumbs will be enough, right? But I also think about the nature of people. We believe in the church that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And Jesus doesn't have like a God, God box of his personality and a human box of his personality. 
But in the Word made flesh, the human and the divine dwell together. And Jesus is a whole person. And there are some ways in which we see the divine shine through. And I think there are some ways in which we see the humanity shine through. And one of the things we're reminded in seeing God's divinity and humanity interacting is where God is, holy things happen. Where, where God is, new things are possible. And we talk about Jesus being perfect, and I believe that Jesus is perfect, the one without sin who was given for our sins. I wonder sometimes what our definition of perfection is. Does, does perfect mean that if Jesus played Gamecock football, he could have beat Georgia yesterday? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, Georgia just squeaked that one out, right? Or, or does it mean if Jesus were a baseball player, he'd be the best baseball Or if he did math problems, he'd be, you know, that kind of thing? Does, does perfection mean that, that Jesus never had any fears or doubts or questions? Well, we know that's not true because when Jesus was praying in the garden before he was arrested, he prayed, Lord, if this cup can pass, let it pass. But if not, then not my will, but your will be done, right? So we know that when Jesus prayed, Jesus prayed in the same way that we pray. When Jesus had fears, Jesus had fears in the same way we had fears. And when Jesus thought about the end of life, Jesus had the same fears and nervousness that we have. And we see it on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Maybe perfection doesn't mean we do the right thing the first time all the time. Perhaps what we see is a conflict in Jesus where growing up as a Jew who was taught to distrust and dislike and not associate with Gentiles, Jesus' culture spoke first and said, why would I throw something good to dogs? And I think we all have in our lives those people we think of as dogs, right? And, and the popular groups that we talk about is black and white. We talk about immig immigrants, we, whether they're documented or undocumented. We talk about, you know, all these different groups, males and females, that we tend to pit against each other. We think of in opposition to each other. And, you know, none of those may be your thing. They may not be your people who you consider to be less than you. But we all have those people. We all have those people. When we hear their name, they say, oh, Lord, there's them again. When, uh, when Lauren took me home for the first time, my, my future mother-in-law looked at me. I had long hair and a beard, and I kind of looked like a hippie. And she said, oh, it's him. Now, she's Southern. And so him had two syllables at this point. And what I learned is that the more syllables the word has, the more concerned the person is. And I think that first time, it may have had three or four syllables. Now, I, I remained him for a few years. I remained him after we were married. I remained him through seminary. Oddly enough, when I graduated seminary and got a full-time job, I became Eric. It's amazing the way that worked out, right? And, but we, you know, we all have those people who are them. Those people. The ones we suspect. The ones who aren't as good as us. The the ones who we keep over there. And sometimes it's groups of people, and, and sometimes it's those individuals. I think of James. I, I think of James saying to the church, you know, you, you respect the rich people, and you invite the rich people in to have a seat, but the poor people, you tell to stand back against the wall. You know, how is it that you can be people of faith when you're not loving your neighbors and you love yourself? How is it that you can claim to be part of the promise of God 
who sent his son and his death and resurrection, calls us into a relationship of forgiveness and absolution. How is it that you can be forgiven and you can be given this new kingdom and you can be given this new hope and this new life and this new place? And yet you deny that same equal place at the table and in the seats to people who have less than you. You know, I remember Jesus saying, when you throw a party, invite the people who can't throw a party back. We see time and time again Jesus choosing people who don't have anything to offer but themselves and their time and their sincerity. And time and time again throughout scriptures, God lifts up those people who are lowly. Remember, we do worship the God who has a tendency to deliver people out of slavery and, and preach woe unto those people who have enough, especially those people who are selfish. And again, we all have those places in our lives where we are selfish with our love, where we are selfish with our, with our generosity, where we act ungrateful and, and aren't forgiven in the same way that we're forgiven. We all have those spaces that are captive to sin that we cannot free ourselves. And it's only by the grace of God and God's promise of love that we have any hope of getting by. And, and we hear these words of James as convicting for us too. We hear these words of James saying to us, if your faith can leave people hungry, if your faith can leave people out, if your faith doesn't move you to action, and isn't your faith just dead? Faith without works is dead. Not that we work for our righteousness, but our righteous actions spring forth from the well of our gratitude for the love and the promise and the welcome that God has given us from the time we were baptized and before. As infants in the Lutheran Church were baptized, before we we're able to name, claim, profess, or believe anything, God calls us children. Before we're able to do anything for God, God calls us blessed. We are a people who are baptized into a well that we did not dig. And all we can do is respond. If our response doesn't include gratitude, if our response doesn't include love for them, will, will our faith save these people? Will our faith feed people? Will our faith clothe people? Will, will our faith show kindness to people? Or do we have to do something about it? And so I, I think about Jesus. And I think about the fact that something caused him to change his mind. And say to that woman, because you've said this, well, even the crumbs will be enough is what she said. Because you've said this, your daughter is healed. Go and she'll, she's well. And she went home and her daughter was well. And it causes me to think about my life in those places where my heart is hard, and those places where my ears are closed, and those places where maybe my heart's racing and I'm nervous or anxious or afraid or angry or any of those things, and I don't have the words to say to make it better. And I think about Jesus with the man who was deaf, and he said to that man, be open, and he could hear. Be open, and he can speak. And in what way in our lives, through our faith that leads into works, is God saying to you, be open? In what way is God saying to this congregation, be open? In what way is God saying to us in our culture, in our nation, in our world, throughout Union County, be open? So that we might be poured out for the sake of the world that God loves. 
through the waters of baptism, we have been called to be the promise born into the world that God so loves. Whether we want that call or whether we don't want that call, God is issuing that call. What is it in your life that you need for God to open in order for you to answer? Amen.